Hey everyone, welcome to the Southside Church Podcast from Chilliwack, British Columbia, Canada. We're praying that hope would rise in your life as you listen to this message today. Well, good morning everybody. Good morning. Leah said backstage, she's like, let's not tell everybody that service time changed. Everyone would be early every week. It would be so amazing. Hey, if you want to understand the love of God, you need look no further than the cross. On the cross, Jesus showed us what love looks like. See, the purest expression of love, by the way, is not words. It's action. Laying down your life for others. When Jesus was on the cross, one of the last things he said was, it is finished. Actually, that's the English phrase. What Jesus actually spoke was Greek. He said the word tetelestē. To tell us day. And one of the translations is, it is finished. Another one, slightly different, is paid in full. Paid in full. On the cross, Jesus paid in full. He paid the price for all of our wrong to be made right. He paid the price for our salvation, for our forgiveness. He paid the price for all of our loss to be made found for our eternity. If you want to understand God's love, you need look no further than the cross. And if you want to understand God's power and victory, you need look no further than the empty tomb. See, the purest expression of power isn't words. It's action. See, through the empty tomb, we understand that not only did Jesus face death in the grave, he defeated them. See, through the cross, we understand that God is good. And through the empty tomb, we understand that God is great. The cross and the empty tomb make up the essence of the gospel. You can't have one without the other. The cross without the empty tomb is defeated sentimentality. The empty tomb without the cross is impersonal mysticism. The cross and the empty tomb. God is good and God is great. Over the last few weeks, I've been talking to you about how a vast majority of scholars, a vast majority of historians will tell you that Jesus Christ absolutely lived. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. And he absolutely died on a Roman cross. The question that I want to ask today is this. And then what? Jesus lived and Jesus died. And then what? I would suggest that that is the question. That is the question question. In May of 1945, World War II ended in Europe. The Axis powers, represented largely by Nazi Germany, Italy, and Japan, were defeated by the Allies, represented largely by Great Britain, Canada, and the United States. The demoralizing truth was, even as World War II was winding down, there was a new conflict rising up to take its place. It came to be known as the Cold War. Winston Churchill described the Cold War this way. He said, there's an iron curtain descending across our continent of Europe. And on the eastern side of that iron curtain lays communism. On the western side of the iron curtain was democracy. For over 40 years, the world sat on the edge of its seat during the Cold War, worried the entire time that that Cold War would one day turn hot that we would see World War III. And one thing that was very certain 
was that unlike World War I and World War II, if World War III was to happen, it really would be the war to end all wars because the nuclear arsenal possessed by the democratic United States and the communist Soviet Union were enough to end all wars and end all life on our planet many times over. The symbolic center of the Cold War was the nation of Germany. That Iron Curtain descended right across the nation of Germany. There was communist East Germany and democratic West Germany. In fact, deep in the heart of communist East Germany was a city called Berlin. And Berlin itself was split. Communist East Berlin and democratic West Berlin. So it's interesting, West Berlin was like this little democratic island in the middle of communism. And it was into... West Berlin, not long after the end of World War II, that the famous evangelist Billy Graham flew in. He flew in for a meeting with the first West German Chancellor, Konrad Adenauer. As he sat in Chancellor Adenauer's office, after they exchanged some greetings, Konrad Adenauer looked at Billy Graham and he said, Mr. Graham, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Billy Graham answered, I do, sir, with all my heart. Conrad Adenauer stood up and he walked to the window of his office. Overlooking this war-torn city of Berlin, ravaged by the horrors of Nazism, bombed to end World War II, and now the symbolic center of this new conflict called the Cold War. He looked at Billy Graham and he said this, apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I see no hope for mankind. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ must still be dead. And if he is still dead, then all our preaching is useless and your trust in God is empty, worthless, hopeless. The fact is that Christ did actually rise from the dead. Jesus lived, Jesus died, and then what? John chapter 20, starting at verse one. Early in the morning of the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone was moved away from the entrance. What do we know about the first eyewitness to the empty tomb? What do we know about the first eyewitness to the empty tomb? Well, we know that her first name was Mary. It's the kind of hard-hitting research I do during the week to prepare for days like today. Uh, We know that she was from a small town on the western side of the sea, of Galilee called Magdala. We actually know that there was a time uh, years earlier that Jesus cast out seven demons from Mary Magdalene. Let me tell you something that you already innately know, but maybe you've never had it described to you in words. We stand right now in the middle of a great spiritual battle. You can't see it, but you can feel it. It's a battle of light versus darkness, hope versus despair, life versus death. It's a battle of God versus the devil. This spiritual battle that we can't see but we can all feel, it's the reason why life isn't always sunshine and rainbows. And it's the reason why sometimes even when life feels like smooth sailing, sometimes deep down inside of here it doesn't feel that way. It's the reason why we see conflict out there and we 
experience conflict in here. There's a spiritual battle raging all around us. See, God is our Father. God comes with blessing. God comes with life. God is a creator. But the devil is the opposite. Instead of blessing, he comes to steal. Instead of life, he comes to kill. Instead of creation, he comes to destroy. Steal and kill and destroy. Steal and kill and destroy. The devil, the enemy of your soul, wants to destroy everything God creates. The pinnacle of God's creation is people. He comes after people. He, he, he wants to defeat people. He wants to surround them in darkness and despair so that he can destroy them. That's the goal. So at some point in the life of Mary Magdalene, she was oppressed by seven demons sent by the devil to destroy her. And Jesus showed up and set her free. Now, now that's pretty much what we know about Mary from the Bible. But there is one more thing that we can ascertain about Mary from sources outside the Bible, and I'm not exactly sure how to put it, so I'll just say it this way. Mary Magdalene did not have what you would refer to as a squeaky clean moral reputation. Okay? Especially in that culture at that time, she did not have a squeaky clean moral reputation. And now here's the question I want to ask you. Of all the people that John could have chosen to be the first eyewitness to the empty tomb, why in the world would he pick Mary Magdalene? I mean, let's forget the fact that she didn't have a squeaky, clean, moral reputation. Let's state the obvious. She was a woman. In that culture at that time, oh, let's be real. At that time, all over the world, women couldn't even give testimony in a trial. The story of women, by the way, throughout history, until the time that Jesus showed up, is one where they were considered inferior, easily manipulated, too emotional, too stupid to even give testimony at a trial. If you're looking for a hero in history, by the way, if you're looking for a hero in history, a hero of inclusion, a hero of equality, if you're looking for somebody in history who showed up and said this, no, 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 everyone's equal. Everyone's valuable. Everyone's loved. Men and women, rich and poor, every, na every nation, every tribe, and every tongue, and every culture, everywhere. If you're looking for a hero in history of inclusion and equality, look no further than Jesus. But it's interesting because you ask yourself, why would John pick her to be the first eyewitness to the empty tomb? Now, I say it that way intentionally because there are people who have stated in the past, well, the disciples just got together and they wrote this story. Now, last week I, I talked to you about some tests of historical reliability. Okay, and they, they all start with a C because it helps me remember, right? Corroboration. Clarity, consistency. We talked about the, the, the test of cost, right? That, that thousands of people stated Jesus actually lived, he actually died, he actually rose again. And they stated that even though stating that cost them their own lives. That had they denied it, they would have lived. But they didn't deny it because they knew 
for themselves that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ meant that their hope lies beyond this world. I wanna give you one more test of historical reliability right now. It's another C, credibility. In other words, if something seems too slick to be true, it probably is. If something seems too slick to be true, it probably is. Let me state that a different way. There is only one possible reason that of all the people in the world to be the first eyewitness to the empty tomb, they chose Mary Magdalene. There's only one possible reason. What's that reason? It's because she was. Because it actually happened that way. She ran at once to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Again, just a reminder, uh, John, the author of this gospel, he always referred to himself as the one Jesus loved. She ran at once to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, gasping for breath. They took the master from the tomb. We don't know where they put him. Peter and the other disciple left immediately for the tomb. They ran neck and neck. The other disciple got to the tomb first, outrunning Peter. Stooping to look in, he saw the pieces of linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. Simon Peter arrived after him, entered the tomb, observed the linen cloth lying there, and the kerchief used to cover his head, not lying with the linen cloth, but separate, neatly folded by itself. Then the other disciple, the one who had gotten there first, went into the tomb took one look at the evidence and believed. No one yet knew from the scripture that he had to rise from the dead. The disciples then went back home. Who wrote the Gospel of John? John, okay. It's not a trick question, okay? So it's John, right? Okay, so um, who's running neck and neck to the tomb? John and Peter. And it's like, John, would you mind telling us who won the race to the tomb? Like, would you be willing to share? And John's like, well... Okay, I got there first. Okay, I beat him. That's how it happened. And just in case we didn't get it the first time, John goes on on to say, uh, Simon Peter did arrive after him, and then the other disciple, the one who had gotten there first. You know, it's really funny to me because you gotta remember when John wrote his gospel, he's like an old dude. He's still competitive though, right? He's looking back. He was about 19, maybe 20 years old at the time of Jesus' resurrection. Peter's about 30. He's like those old legs, Peter was 30, over the hill completely, right? Couldn't keep up, I beat him, I beat him, okay? I beat him to the tomb. But something really fascinating happens when John arrives first. He stoops down, he looks into the empty tomb, and he's like, ugh, and he steps back. See, what he he sees when he looks is he sees all, all the burial cloths, there was a man named Nicodemus and another man named Joseph of Arimathea. And after Jesus had died on the cross, they wrapped him up. They, they took a bunch of spices and burial cloths, about 100 pounds worth, and they wrapped the body of Jesus up to prepare him for burial. When John stoops down and looks into the tomb, this is what he sees. He sees the burial cloths basically unsettled. They haven't really been changed. They're not cut. They're not unraveled. There's just one thing, no body. They're all intact, except one thing, no body. And John's like, that's weird, I'm not going in. It's almost like Jesus was resurrected and stepped right out of the grave clothes. 
But the amazing thing to me is Peter, who got there second, I should remind you, um, what does Peter do when he shows up? He heads right into the tomb. Some old Peter, right? As we've been on this journey through John, we've talked about Peter quite a bit, right? We said Peter is a man who leaps sometimes before he looks. He talks sometimes before he thinks. He's passionate. He's impulsive. And, and because of that, he has really high highs and low lows. When this dude biffs it, I mean, he biffs it, okay? For all history to remember. And yet, as John's standing there going, I don't want to go in, Peter walks right in. What I want to suggest to you is Peter, actually, at his heart, is a courageous, straightforward, straight shooter. And because of that, because of his courage, and because he's so straightforward, he ended up becoming one of the greatest preachers in all of human history. I say all that to you to say this. Your personality is a blessing, not a curse. The person who God created you to be, it's a blessing, not a curse. It's a gift, by the way. God thought you up. You're his idea. You are a gift. You are a gift to this world. You are a gift to you. You're a beautiful creation. You are a blessing and not a curse. See, because this is what I think happens in our world. I think for a lot of us, we come to this conclusion, maybe even subconsciously, that my ability to be a success in life will come down to this. How am I able to compensate for my personality? How, how am I able to distance myself, to run the other way from the person God created me to be? But that's a lie. Your personality is a blessing. It's not a curse. First day of grade one for me, first day of grade one, I could figure it out right away. I'm different than the other kids. Right away. Couldn't sit still. Couldn't pay attention. Didn't listen, talk too much. And if you look through my entire school career, all of my report cards, they back me up. Mike needs to stop talking. Mike's not paying attention. Mike needs to pay better attention. Mike doesn't sit still. Mike needs to stop getting out of his desk over and over and over during class, like over and over and over again. Here's the weird thing, though, right? When you're in primary school, teachers don't like stuff like that very much. And then the other students can tell that the teacher doesn't like you, and then you become weird and different. You remember that stage? So for me, who I was was kind of heartbreaking. And so I began to come to the conclusion that the person who I really am, what I need to do is like, I'm only going to succeed if I compensate for that, if I kind of run the other way from the personality. So when I got into middle school and high school, I became very socially acceptable. One of the ways I did it was to say this, I can't pay attention because I don't want to. This guy's so boring. This is terrible. Like, I, I hate this. I don't want to sit still. I don't want to listen. I don't want to stop talking. I really came to the conclusion that my ability to have success would come down to this. Can I compensate for my personality? Can I distance myself from the person I was created to be? And something weird happened. When I was 23 years old, I started teaching high school. And I remember that first year and I remember sitting down, putting together lesson plans. And, and I'll bet you I spent four times the effort and the time 
putting together every single lesson plan than any other teacher I know. And here's why. I had a goal for my classes. My goal was this. Don't be boring. Don't be boring. If you talk to my mom and dad, they'll tell you, the word that I probably spoke the most growing up was that word, boring. This is so boring. I can't sit still. I can't pay attention. I can't listen. It's so boring. I'm so bored. I'm so bored. So when I, when, I would put, when I would put together lesson plans, what I would do is I would say, man, I don't want this class to be boring to who? To school-age Mike Manis. That is a high bar, my friends. And so I started putting together classes that wouldn't bore school-age Mike Manis. And if you talk to any student that's ever been in a class that I taught, they might tell you they didn't like me very much. I kind of doubt it, but maybe. They will not tell you it was boring. Same thing's true of you. Who you are is amazing, it's a gift. It's a gift. For, for some of you here today, you're a perfectionist. You're a perfectionist. And somewhere along the line, you felt like over, over your time in life, there's been times that you've been paralyzed and you haven't done anything because you're scared that you're not going to be able to do it perfectly. And so you come to the conclusion at times that, man, your ability to succeed will come down to, can I compensate for my personality? Can I run the other way from the person God created me to be? You don't need to. Because here's the thing. God is a God of beauty. God is a God of ingenuity. God is a God of excellence. And that perfectionist part of you, man, there's something incredible about you. You have this ability to produce beauty, to spot beauty. You have ingenuity, you have creativity, you have excellence, and that brings glory to God. There's people here today, and, and you would say, man, in, in a world that's so really quick to point the finger or shake the fist, I've always been somebody who likes to lend a hand. You just like to serve people, you know? But you look back over your life, and what you've seen is there's been times that you've overfunctioned, and you've ended up in relationships where the people around you, they kind of take you for granted a bit. Maybe someone has even called you codependent before, like other people just get dependent on you. And so you've decided that in order for you to be a success, this is what you need to do. Compensate for your personality. Run the other way from the person who God created you to be. Nothing could be further from the truth. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said this. Follow in my footsteps. I stepped into human history not to be served, but to serve. Or maybe you're a leader. You just like to get things done, man. It's like, you wanna move the ball down the field. You wanna make progress. But somewhere along the line, there's been times that you've been called pushy. Isn't that hard to believe? It's amazing, isn't it? You've been called a bully, maybe. Maybe even a jerk. And so you come to this conclusion. Well, my ability to succeed in life will come down to this. Can I compensate for my personality? Can I run as far as I can from the person God created me to be? Heaven forbid. You, you, you understand that God is a God of progress, right? God wants to see the ball down the field. God says this, the kingdom of God is advancing and forceful people take hold of it. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it as we advance. Or maybe you're here today and, and you're really good at just kind of understanding both sides of a conflict. You can hear people out and you can bring people together, but there's been... Uh, people in your life that have said to you, man, you're so spineless. Take a stand. And so you come to this same conclusion. And I'll be a success in life when I can compensate for this weakness that's called my personality, when I've run the other way from the person who God created me to be. But that's not true. In the most famous sermon ever preached, Jesus said, 
Blessed are the peacemakers. So please hear me today. You're a gift. This world desperately needs you to be the youest version of you. Don't run away from it. Don't compensate for it. Be you. Be you. You're a gift to this world. I'm gonna give you two ways that you can do that. Number one, spend time with God every day. Spend time with God every day. Every single morning, I'll look back over the last 24 hours and I invite God into it. And I say, God, can you show me the times that I've been over-functioning? Can you show me the times that I've been under-functioning? Can, can, you, can you show me the times that I'm settling for less than who I really was created to be? Show me, lead me. I wanna be the meest version of me today. And the second thing, you need God and you, you need other people. You need to belong. You need to belong. And I don't, I don't just honestly mean belonging for the sake of belonging, but you need to be on a mission. You need, you need to be around other people who are a little bit different than you, um, getting something amazing done. That's why we talk a, l- a little bit at Southside about how the number one step, the most important step that you could ever take is to believe, to believe, to believe. That's huge. But then you need to belong. For extroverts, this is pretty easy, right? You're just like, well, I'm surrounded by people all the time. I know, but make sure you're getting something done. For introverts, you don't need a 1,000 people, but you need a few people around you. Right after this service today is something called Southside 101. It's a chance, if you have questions about believing, it's a great place to bring those questions, but it's also an opportunity to move from believing to belonging. I think it's a big deal. Why? Because we need you. This world needs you to be the youest version of you. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. As she wept, she knelt to look into the tomb and saw two angels sitting there, dressed in white, one at the head, the other at the foot of where Jesus' body had been laid. They said to her, woman, why do you weep? They took my master, she said, and I don't know where they put him. After she said this, she turned away. Really, really interesting, by the way. Almost every time an angel shows up in the Bible and speaks to a person, the first thing they say to that person is, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. They don't say that to Mary. Mary looks in and sees these angels in dazzling white in this tomb. She doesn't care. She's like, where's the body of Jesus? It says that she turns away and saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't recognize him. Jesus spoke to her, woman, why do you weep? Who are you looking for? I just want you, if you can, just put yourself in this moment. She, thinking that he was the gardener, said, Sir, if you took him, tell me where you put him so I can care for him. Jesus said, Mary. Turning to face him, she said in Hebrew, Rabboni, meaning teacher or beloved teacher. I wonder why Mary didn't recognize Jesus. There's another part of the story, too, in in Luke chapter 24, where there's two disciples walking on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and Jesus joins them and walks with them and starts to unpack the scriptures with them, and they don't recognize him that time either. I mean, there's a few possible explanations. One might be they're just rattled, you know? Like Jesus did say, I'm gonna rise again, but they didn't really believe it. They hadn't actually seen that happen before, so they didn't expect him. I got another thought just another possibility for you today. Next week, as we continue our journey through John, 
we're gonna talk about one of Jesus' disciples, a guy by the name of Thomas. Worst nickname ever. I'll tell you what his nickname next week, but, but coolest guy ever. But as we kind of get to the part of Thomas' story, we're gonna see that in Jesus' post-resurrection body, he still had scars. He had scars in his hands and, and, and his feet, and he had a scar in his side from everything that he went through at the cross. And, and I got to wondering, because one of the things that you need to realize is that Jesus was beat unrecognizable before they nailed him to the cross. And so what I was wondering is, does he also have the scars on his face? And is that why they didn't recognize him? One thing I will tell you is when you and me step into eternity, we're gonna get a new body, a resurrection body, and it's gonna be perfect. No sickness, no disease, no death. I'm pretty sure I'm gonna have a 54-inch vertical minimum. You know, I'm gonna be unreal at golf. All right, so, so this is gonna be, be awesome, but not only are we gonna get a new body, but Jesus is gonna create a new heaven and a new earth, and it's gonna be beautiful, and it's gonna be joy, and it's gonna be love, and it's gonna be fun, and it's gonna be adventure, it's gonna be forever. There's only gonna be one person in all of eternity walking around with scars, and that's Jesus. But when we look at his scars, it won't be ugly, it'll be beautiful, because we'll remember every time we look the price that he paid and the freedom that he purchased. Before I go any further, I wanna say to you, I got a little bit of a bone to pick with you. I got a little bit of an issue with you right now, and I know that I'm right. Okay, you ready for me to make this claim? You are guilty of something. You're guilty of making the Bible boring. No, you really are. I'll, I can prove it. When I read this section, Jesus said, Mary, turning to face him, she said in Hebrew, Rabboni, meaning beloved teacher. Okay, when I read that to you, this is how you pictured it. Jesus standing there like this. Mary. And Mary going, whoa, Rabboni. Okay, <laughs> right? That's what you did. You make the Bible incredibly boring. There's no way it happened like that. It didn't even kind of happen like that. I love giving gifts. I think I'm a pretty generous person. Like last Tuesday, Halloween, Corinne and I gave away full-size chocolate bars. Okay, I'm not gonna remind you again. Next Halloween, make sure you swing by. We're giving away full-size chocolate bars. And part of the reason I do that is because I'm generous. Okay, the other reason is, I kind of like the feeling when the kids like run from my doorway and go tell their parents, we got a full-size chocolate bar. And they're like, whoa, hey, thank you. And I'm like, you're welcome. I'm the guy, right? I'm, I'm the guy. <laughs> we, uh, we pick names every year for the Manus family Christmas. There's a lot of us, so. We just pick names and, and the, the limit is 100 bucks. Okay, $100, pick names, and I blow past that $100 limit. Like, I mean, way past it. Last two years, I've just, just blown way, way, way past the limit. You say, well, that's not fair, Mike. That's not right. I don't care what you think because I'm gonna blow hard by it again this year and for the foreseeable future. And the reason I do that, by the way, is because every year when we pick names, what I really want is I want everybody to think, man, I sure hope dad gets my name. That's what I hope, okay? I just blow right past the limit. One of my favorite gift-giving stories 
is the year that Corinne and I took the kids to Disneyland. We had absolutely no money back then, so we saved for months and 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 months to take the kids to Disneyland. And I remember we planned this huge surprise, okay? We told them that we were gonna go down to Bellingham Costco, big outing, you know, okay? We're gonna go down to Bellingham Costco, and uh, we, we loaded into the Manus Mobile. We had this old Yukon XL, okay? But we actually packed their bags secretly, okay? So we, we get in the Manus Mobile, and we're driving down towards the border, and Corinne hands back these envelopes. And inside the envelopes is these little cards that we bought, and the cards were like three days in Disneyland, one day at Universal, one day at SeaWorld. Okay, and the kids just lost it. Just lost it. And I should also tell you, I wanted to tell them so many times leading up to that moment, but Corinne is way better at keeping surprises than I am, so I was so glad that she did it. But, but, but they were so happy, I think I was happier. Like, I was just so stoked that they were stoked. I was so blessed that they were blessed, you know? And so they're all cheering. And I think to myself, that moment in the Manus Mobile, that moment in the Manus Mobile, that might be just a little bit like this moment beside the empty tomb. Like, Jesus isn't like, Mary. He's like, Mary! We did it! We did it. I know, I know, I know. You didn't think it was going to work out. I know. No one's ever done it before, but I did it. I'm alive. I defeated death. I defeated the grave. And it would have been this incredible moment. And it's so important we get it. I just imagine Mary responding, you know, let's go. Like just this moment, just this celebration moment, this victory moment. Because one day, you're gonna step into eternity. And I just wanna make sure you understand what's waiting for you there. The Bible says that Jesus is gonna call your name. And it's not gonna be this. Mike. <laughs> or even this. Mike? You know, how did you get here? Did, like, I mean, maybe a little bit of that, but mostly, Mostly, when he calls your name, when he speaks your name, it's going to be the, a, little, like, a little bit like the Manus Mobile. It's going to be like, look what I bought for you. It's all for you. I've been prepared. I, I wanted to tell you sooner, but here it is. Here it is. That's the moment. Jesus said, don't cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. I have a bone to pick with you. You make the Bible so boring. Because as I read that, you imagine it this way, Jesus standing there after going, Mary, just don't cling to me, okay? <laughs> it, it, it didn't happen, it didn't, you know it didn't happen that way, so stop thinking that it did. Let me show you a video, show you a little bit what it would have looked like. <laughs> what is that? Who, who said that? The golden goal, thank you very much. Thank you very much. The golden goal, keep playing it. On the ice with a Gimlop. A How many people remember where they were when Crosby scored the golden goal? Hands up. Yeah, I, I, I don't know exactly where I was. To, I, I wanted to say I remember exactly where I was. I know I was driving. And I was listening to the game on my radio, and I found out when Crosby scored that goal 
that everybody else was listening to the game on their radio too because as soon as he scored, we're all just honking our horns and everyone's cheering out of their window. It was this incredible moment, you know? I want you to think about it because the Olympics in 2010 were where? Anyone know? Vancouver, thank you. This is great, okay. Who, who wrote the Gospel of John again? Good. Where were the Olympics in 2010? We're cooking with oil now. Okay, here we go. Here we go. We're cooking with... Okay, which is in Canada, okay? I didn't want to ask that because I was scared that... Okay, so anyways. Well, Canada. It's in Canada. The Olympics are in Canada, right? And so it's the Winter Olympics, and our sport is hockey. Our sport is hockey. And so one of the things that we knew for sure is, I don't know what else is going to happen in the Olympics, but I can tell you, men's hockey, we're winning it. That's for sure. But then the final comes, and guess who we're playing? The United States. You've got to be kidding me. I mean, they're good at so many sports, but hockey is our thing. It's just so annoying, right? And the game goes on, and we're up 2 nothing, and we deserve to be up 2 nothing. Like, I mean, we were dominating that game. And two flute goals, 2-2, two, two, now we're in overtime. It's like, really? The United States is going to come into our country. They beat us at hockey? And then Crosby scored, and I'm like, everything is as it should be. Let's go. (laughs) Stop making the Bible boring. That's a little bit about that scene that I just showed you. That's a little bit like Mary and Jesus beside the empty tomb. See, God created the world. He spoke the universe into existence. And he spoke you into existence, and he loves you. And he created this world to be perfect. Hope and love and life forever. But somewhere along the line, our spiritual enemy, the devil, he stepped in. He came into God's world, into the world that God created us, and he brought death, and he brought despair, and, 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 and he brought the grave with him. And so there's just a sense, right? Really? This is how it's going to end? And then Mary sees Jesus. It's like Jesus is like, death didn't get the last laugh. The grave didn't get the last laugh. Life wins. Hope wins. Joy wins. Forever wins. And if you want to know, oh, and, and Jesus says, don't cling to me. Yeah, yeah, it's like Crosby. He throws off his gloves, and, and, and I don't know if you noticed, but Rick Nash, I, I, don't, I don't even really love Rick Nash as a player, but I love that moment, because he just, like everyone else, is kind of come. Rick Nash like vaults from like 10 feet away in the air, and I think that's what Mary did. And Jesus is like, can't breathe, Mary. Like, good, that's great. I gotta go. He says this, go to my brothers and tell them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went telling the news to the disciples, I saw the Master, and she told them everything he said to her. Professor of history at Oxford, Sir Thomas Arnold said this, I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence than Christ died and rose again from the dead. That's good news, you know? Life wins, hope wins, forever wins. 
But I got even better news because I want to go back to that passage. Jesus says, I ascend to my father and your father. My father and your father, Jesus says. My father and your father. My father and your father. In other words, here's what he's saying. That when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price for me and you to be adopted into God's family. Right? So, so, so in that sense, Jesus is your big brother. Jesus is my big brother. He is. The Bible actually calls him the firstborn of the dead. The firstborn. The firstborn of the dead, the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? What does that mean? My father and your father, my father and your father. What does that mean? We're adopted into God's family. Jesus is my big brother. When he stepped out of the empty tomb, here's what it means. Resurrection, resurrection, resurrection runs in your family. It's hereditary. Resurrection runs in your family. Oh. Jesus lived. And Jesus died. And then what? Jesus is alive. God is good. God is great. And he loves you. And he's for you. Right here and right now. And because he stepped out of that empty tomb, one thing I can tell you unequivocally and honestly and completely sincerely, the best, the best, the best, the best is still yet to come. Let's pray. So resurrection runs in your family. I just got a real simple question for you today. I'm telling you that Jesus Christ lived, he died, he rose again for you. Everything that needed to be done for your salvation, for your forgiveness, for your forever, everything that needed to be done, Jesus has accomplished. It's finished. The next move now is yours. If today is the day that you accept everything that Jesus did for you. Say, Jesus, I believe I want to follow you today, tomorrow, and forever with all heads bowed and all eyes closed. If today is the day, why don't you raise your hand up nice and high? I want to pray for you. It's amazing, amazing. And if you're online and it's safe to do so, I'd love it if you could raise your hand too. For those of you who have your hands up, you can put your hands back down. Oh, and by the way, I saw three of you. Shoot your hand up and put it back down again. That's okay. That's okay. God saw. I'm going to pray out loud and I invite you to pray silently along with me. So Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your death and thank you for your resurrection. I pray that you would be my savior. I want to give you my, my sin and my shame and my guilt. And today I just want to walk away with a clean slate and a fresh start. And Jesus, today I invite you to be my Lord. Give me the strength to follow you one next step at a time today, tomorrow, and forever. And God, for all of us here today, and we've been following your son Jesus for a long time, I just pray that you would fill us with joy. I confess, God, that sometimes when I read sections of scripture like this, I just make it cardboard, and I make it boring. But you're anything but... So just fill us with joy. Fill us with hope. Fill us with laughter and faith. We love you, we thank you in your name. Amen. Let's celebrate. I love you guys. We'll see you next week.
Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And to stay up to date with all things Southside, follow at Southside underscore church on Instagram. We love you guys. The best is yet to come.